This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 289 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Kevin and Margaret Hines. Now, every so often I will do a recording and I know that it has to be released immediately. And this is definitely one of those. So backstory, Kevin is one of the very few people on planet Earth that planned to take his own life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, survived an incredible story of survival, and then has spent the last 20 years along with his wife, Margaret, as a mental health advocate. So an incredibly powerful conversation, a great dynamic having Margaret and Kevin together. As you hear, he's in a very good place now. So it's also very inspiring to see that you can get through some very, very dark places. But I urge you all to listen to this episode. Before we get to that, as I always say every single week, please take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five star ratings truly do make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this has now become a huge free library of incredible information and that I'm trying to get to every single person that needs to hear it. So the more you guys share, whether it's social media, email, using it in your training department, whatever you want to do, the more people we get this to, the more lives that we're going to save. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin and Margaret Hines. Enjoy. All right, 
Kevin and Margaret, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on for the second time. Um, first time we had a technical glitch. So welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you very thank much. You. We're glad to be here. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Atlanta, Georgia. This is our this is our our, our home, and uh, we're, we're we're given what's going on with COVID nineteen, the coronavirus. We are sequestered to our house and uh, <laughs> enjoying some 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 you know, good quality time together. Yeah, well, I have to confess that when everyone's quarantined, I realize well, this is a great way to hunt them down and get Skype interviews done before we all go back to other things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Things. It's true. So, all right, well, I'd like to start at the beginning. So um, let's start with you, Margaret. Well, where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? I was born in the Philippines to a Spanish-Filipino-American family. Uh, my mother is American. My father is Spanish-Filipino. And um, I have... a really big family. My, I'm one of four siblings. Uh, my dad is one of 15. Um, my mom is one of three and I have about 150 cousins, um, aunts, uncles, and my brothers and I are the only ones that live in the United States. The rest of my family is either in Europe, Asia, or Australia, actually. Um, but we are really close knit family. I grew up with family living with us, um, always, uh, you know, you think of a big Spanish or Greek family, if you're more familiar with that, Italian family, if you will, where everybody knows what is happening in your life. So everybody's in your business and it's super annoying, but you know, when times are tough and you really need people, you have like everybody behind you and everybody's got your back. Um, so I come from a really large close knit family, um, and we stay in touch to this day constantly. I had a, um, a FaceTime call with 12 of my family members this morning, actually <laughs> at 5 a.m. So including my, my father who lives in the Philippines currently. So that's kind of my background. Um, I obviously we moved it back. We moved to the States um, when I was 10 years old, being that my mom is American and we are American citizens. Um and was educated in the States, have been in the States my entire life. Um, and then um, met Kevin in San Francisco, got married. Um, my background is in venture capital and private equity. Um, five, six years, five years ago, five and a half years ago, my mom passed away from lung cancer. And I decided to um, quit the partnership, essentially, uh, leave my partnership and leave my venture capital firm and just, um, not return to VC and to actually travel the world with Kevin, um, and join him in scaling his mission, which is suicide prevention and mental health. And I have really kind of taken and fallen in love with the space, um, ever since. And I, in addition to feeling like, you know, it's kind of, um, kind of a humanitarian occupation, um, social justice occupation. I also feel like I'm really contributing on, um, on a really spiritual and soulful and, and humanitarian level. And I, and it makes me feel really good. It makes me feel more fulfilled than I ever did, you know, making millions and billions for millionaires and billionaires. It's, it's been, it's been quite the journey for me. Um, and I'm really happy in the place that, that I'm at in my life today. That's amazing. Well, firstly, my wife is half Filipino, so I totally get what you're saying. 
um, but secondly, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how when you wake up and you have that 24 hours, the value of what you can do with it. And I think our generation collectively were raised in a, in a kind of capitalistic, materialistic way as far as goals. I mean, look at MTV Cribs and all these things. Like, this is how you succeeded. And it's it's interesting hearing some of the guests that I've had on through tragedy or you know, near miss that have reprogrammed the way they look at the world and have found so much more happiness doing, you know, doing things with a lot less kind of financial gain. Yep. Brilliant. Yeah, it's true. It feels great. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What were you going to say? We're just really enjoying our time together um, doing this work. And it's, it's, I'm doing this work with my best friend. So it's just, uh, it's pretty amazing to get to do this every day. I still have all the symptoms I've ever had with my diagnoses of bipolar disorder. Uh, I still go through a lot of mental pain, but she walks me through it and gets me to the other side, which is amazing. I always say that she saved my lives on more times than I can count on all my appendages and even my ear and nose hairs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, then going back to the early life, because this is something that I now, I started off as a complete layman, kind of tripped over mental health in first responders when we had, you know, ov- uh, opioid overdoses and suicides and, you know, the, all the other symptoms basically of mental ill health. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's there's two sides. There's there's a lot of the the resilience and and the the counseling, but then there's also another group of people with mental health issues where you know it's deeper than that, and you need you need medication, and you know it's a daily fight. So obviously you're you know on that side. So kind of walk us through your early life and family unit, and and you know your struggles with that. Kind of bring us up to present day. Absolutely, uh, I was born into a terrible situation. Um, I was born in, in, in the Tenderloin of San Francisco by birth parents who would eventually be on drugs and alcohol, um, who, who dealt with mental health crises, who lived with, um, the diagnosis of manic depression, both of them. I was genetically predisposed twice to bipolar disorder. I would obviously get it at 17 or develop it at 17. Um, but, but I was taken away from my biological parents at a very young age and placed in a foster care at nine months old, um, bounced around from home to home with my brother. We both got bronchitis. He died. I developed a severe abandonment issue and detachment disorder from, for, at, at nine months, um, landed in uh, the home of Patrick and Deborah Hines, my mom and dad, and they, they took me in, maybe their son, adopted me eventually, uh, along with two other kids from two other families. So we were a melting pot of a family. Me, I'm mixed. Uh, my brother's black. My sister's white. And people were very confused when they saw <laughs> us. Um, but we, we were in love. We were happy. And um, Pat and Debbie Hines gave us um, a, real, a real beautiful upbringing and life. Um, and we, get, we got a second chance because of them. Um, and it was amazing. But at 17, it all came crumbling down when my brain broke. My brain broke. I developed severe paranoid delusions and hallucinations, auditory and visual, and I would skyrocket into manic euphoric natural highs. But once you go up, you must come down. I'd come crashing down into the dark abysses of depression and pain. And by the time I hit 19, I was beginning to consider suicide on a regular basis. And at 19 years of age in September, uh, as many people who will be watching this know, 
I attempted to die by my hands by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. It was the single worst action of my life. Um, it was the scariest moment of my life. Um, and obviously, I survived that fall. There were these three amazing miracles that saved my life. A woman driving by in a red car saw me go over the rail and called her friend in the Coast Guard. The only reason the Coast Guard boat arrived to my position in the water before I would set in hypothermia and drown was because of that woman making that phone call to her friend. Um, you're a first responder, so you understand that kind of livelihood. And, and they came and they, before the Coast Guard boat arrived, I kept going down in the water. I, I had shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae into shards. I'd missed severing my spinal cord by two millimeters. I was in real bad shape trying to stay afloat, but I kept going down. And that was the moment that something began to circle beneath me. And I really thought, you know, I thought, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. Um, it, it, this is going to be a shark and it's going to eat me. And I was freaking out, um, punching this thing with my hand, but it wouldn't go away. And that's when um, it just kept bumping me up and I was no longer wading in the water. I was lying atop it being kept buoyant by this creature. Uh, I would later learn from a man named Morgan McWard that it was, in fact, a sea lion keeping me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. And it's fascinating that, that people, when they hear this, they're just blown away. But I just met a man who was on, off the coast of a foreign country, uh, and uh, uh, he was drowning. A, a riptide pulled him out to, to sea, and he was far out to sea, and he, he, was a, he, was, he almost passed out from being underwater for too long, and a dolphin pushed him to the shore. So all, I, I've learned since then that all around the world, over the course of man's history, um, animals of all kinds have come to human's aid in the face of crisis all over the world. It's almost instinctual, uh, sometimes for mother animals or, or, or female animals to aid human beings in times of great crisis. And it's, it's happened over the course of our history. Uh, so that's pretty fascinating. Um, after the Coast Guard boat arrived, though, and the creature took off, they got me to the ambulance. Ambulance got me to the hospital. And one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast was leaving for the day. He opted to stay and do me a solid and perform my surgery, a 10 and a half hour back surgery to replace my shattered vertebrae with titanium and metal, um, which is the singular reason I can walk, stand and run. Um, of, the, of the 39 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, remember that 99% of those who've jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge never again get to tell their story if they're gone. 1% survived that fall. That's 39 people in 83 years of that bridge being opened. Um, uh, and 39 people survived that fall. Only 26 or so remain alive today. Many have died of natural causes or old age. Of those 26 remaining alive today, only five of us get the privilege to stand, walk, and run and have full physical mobility. We, they, they actually call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. And there's a book of the same name by Ben Sherwood. So I am so lucky and blessed to be here to exist, to be with Margaret, to be here talking to you. Uh, and that leads me to appreciate every millisecond, every moment, like it might be my last, because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Um, and so while dealing with this diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I fight it tooth and nail because I know I have value. I know I'm worthy and I know I matter. And if I don't matter to anybody else, I matter to my lovely wife, I matter to my dad, my mom, and my brother, my sister, and, 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 and I matter to myself. And having that self-awareness in my toolkit has really benefited me. Um, and one of the things people always ask me is, 
how do you survive the pain of the mental pain? Because it's so much more damning than physical pain. And as a person who lives with chronic physical pain in, in different ways, um, because of what I did, because of my jump and because of my mental plate and because of my skin disease, um, I believe that pain is inevitable, but pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And we're, we're, we're given this term by clinicians on a regular basis that, that, that when you walk into a, a, a psychiatrist's office for the first time or a psychologist's office for the first time and they diagnose you, they tell you you're suffering with bipolar disorder, you're suffering with schizophrenia, you're suffering with eating disorder. I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. And I didn't always feel this way, but I learned after my skin disease that came on two years ago that gave me second degree burns from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head uh, caused by a medical burn, not a fire, but it was the same kind of burns uh, causing me to be anemic and causing me to lose the ability to, to regulate my temperature. When that pain came, I realized something that this pain could fuel me or it could defeat me. And I never let my pain defeat me. I only, I only today let it build me brick by brick from the ground up. And so, you know, I, I, in dealing with all of this, in being married with all of this, you know, you find ways to cope, you find ways to move forward. Um, and, you know, I do recognize that not everybody has a great support network like I do. But for those of you who don't out there, recognize that you can be your best support network with a great deal of hard work you can change your destiny, change your, your pathway and live a good life and a decent life. And you can find success. And I don't mean monetary success. I mean, life skill success, the ability to look at your life and go, I've got this, I can defeat it one day at a time. And suicide never has to be the solution to my problem. It is the problem. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you. I mean, you know, what you've done with that second chance is absolutely incredible. But I want to go back just to the the top of the bridge just for a second because this is something that I hear a lot and I have had several people that by twists of fate either the gun didn't go off someone stopped them right before they left I mean these incredible interactions but the common denominator is they had this completely oh excuse me they had this completely warped view of self-worth and they thought that they were a burden to their family and the world would be better off without them so what's your perception of that? That is the sad and true part about suicidal crisis and ideation is that you come to a place in such mental instability where you believe that the people around you would be better off without you, that you are useless, worthless, and have no value, and that you are a burden to everyone. It is so far from the truth. Um, you know, yes, there are people in the world and young people around the world who have a familial situation that is detrimental to their health and well-being. Yes, there are people all around the world that are being abused and neglected by their parents and foster parents and, guardi and guardians. Yes, there are people with trauma and familial trauma all over the world who feel a burden to their families because their families are very sick. Um, but in reality, they're not a burden to other people, but those people who are taking care of them are not doing a good job doing so because they're unwell. Um, so to say that is to say this, None of us are burdens to those that deal with us. We are, we are beautiful just as we are. We're perfect just as we are. And we're all a thousand times greater than the worst thing we've ever done. And so I think that if you can recognize in the face of suicidal crisis that you have value, you can continue. You can stay here. You can be here tomorrow and every day after that. And that's our motto is we try to teach people around the world that if they can just 
living with, because there's so many people today, James, living with chronic suicidal ideation, regular suicidal thoughts like I do, if they can recognize that they have value in that moment and that suicide doesn't have to win, that the suicidal ideations are the greatest liars we know, the greatest liars we know. They tell us what they want us to hear, but they're wrong. And if you can look at that and say that, and, and, like when I have suicidal ideation, the first thing I do is tell my wife. Well, you're honest. You're really honest about it. Yeah. That's the thing. And to anybody that's listening that has suicidal ideation, that or to anybody that's listening that knows pe- that know people that are suicidal, I think this is a message for them, really, um, because there, there, there's we know when we're not when we're well, when our, we're in our right minds, when our minds are working properly, that suicide is doesn't have to be the answer. That suicide is is not the solution. It's the, actually the problem. But when we're not well, it's really hard to kind of see the forest from the trees. It's really hard to recognize anything or anyone really for what they are and who they are, right? And and this is definitely one of those situations. So I think putting tools um, and mechanisms and coping skills in place so that there's some sort of, um, whether it's a sticky memory or this is something you pull from when you're not well, it's like, it's it's part of your arsenal, if you will. Um, I think living... um, Living in suicide with suicide, chronic suicidality is so much more common too than than I ever thought it would be. Traveling with Kevin and learning um, about what is really happening in the world and why these suicide rates are so high, I I'm astounded at the number of people who are chronically suicidal. Yeah, and Margaret just recently joined the American Association of Suicidology board, and she's now a a board member there. Um, trying to uh, work harder to uh, to fund research, to fund research and, and programs for suicide prevention all across the United States. Um, yeah, and it's and we're both know, we're both on the Department of Defense task force, task force for suicide prevention for families. For families, but suicide prevention as a whole too. This is the other thing that I, I we were really surprised to hear is suicide prevention gets a lot less funding from the government than smallpox does. And smallpox hasn't killed anybody in 50 years. And so smallpox gets either twice or three times the funding as suicide prevention when it hasn't killed anybody in 50 years. That doesn't make any sense at all. But that's very telling of the climate, I think, that we're in right now overall. And I mean, so if there's no money, there's no research, there's no development, people don't talk about it. So essentially everything we're doing, what you're doing, what we're doing, is a grassroots organization. And and I do think it's helping. I think normalizing the conversation around it is helping. Um, so we'll just continue doing what we're doing. I think uh, just, just want to interrupt you for just a moment and just say to all the folks that are watching this right now who are in crisis, who are hurting inside, you know, you can do a couple things right now. If you feel you don't have a support network, you can text CNQR to 741-741, the crisis text line. That's our foundation's conquer keyword. It stands for conquer your pain. It stands for courage to talk about your mental health with the the C. The N stands for normalize the conversation of it. The Q stands for ask the questions. Are you suicidal? And have you made a plan to take your life? It doesn't put the thought in someone's mind, but gives them permission to speak on their pain. And R stands for recovery, living proof. And you will get a texter, an actual person, text you back within seconds. Within seconds. Um, you can also call the National Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, plus one for military, um, which will be changed very soon, potentially, to a 988 number, uh, which is like 911. Obviously, you know that. Um, 
because they're working on that legislation right now. We we were part of, we were part of that. Got that got passed. They're working on implementing that so yeah. that so that there'll be less waiting times for the call lines, which is great. Um, and we're partners with both the National Lifeline and the Crisis Text Line. So shout out to both of them doing the great work they're doing to save lives. Um, but go ahead, James. We we're just we're just we're trying to find ways in our everyday life to share affect resources. change, share resources, and help people continue to inspire and give out hope because yeah. that's what we've found has really helped helped us, our loved ones, Kevin in particular. And every, obviously this is, you know, Kevin as a subject matter expert is speaking from a lived experience perspective. Um, and he's gone through, been doing this work for 20 years and um, there is a groundswell going on right now. So we're really grateful that people are starting to talk about it and starting to recognize it, but we need, we need, we need so much more um, because every 40 seconds somebody dies by suicide yeah. and that's just not acceptable. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, obviously what's going on right now, they're taking that very seriously. And yet there are so many startling statistics. I know in first responders, we've lost twice as many firefighters, for example, to suicide than we have line of duty deaths. Um, I think if my memory serves me right, there's twice as many gun deaths through suicide than there are through homicide. So, you know, all these, these statistics are just glaring us in the face. And yet, like you said, the, the, the money seems to go to the wrong places. And even this, with this, with this thing that's going on at the moment, the resilience side. So creating a community of men and women that are more mentally resilient, more physically resilient. We're going to be resilient to disease. We're going to be resilient to, you know, foreign threats as far as violence. And then we're going to be resilient to mental health. But as you're talking about, it's always that knee jerk reaction, you know, when, when the next shiny object comes along. I think one of the things that's happening in our, in our culture today with the technological age is that more and more kids are being raised by iPads than they're being raised by their parents. And I think that in that regard, I don't mean to be negative to, to some parents, but what, what, what's happening, what I see happening is the child is crying, so the child gets a, de a device to be distracted by um, instead of love and discipline and care. And I think that that's affecting their ability to be resilient in the future because they're not being taught from a young age how to be resilient in the face of pain. Thus, when they get to be 15, 16, 17 years of age, and they're really faced with some serious struggles mentally, they don't know how to cope because no one's taught them how to be socially, emotionally, and, and physically well. Was that your experience? And I think that I think that, that was, uh, I think my experience was, I, I, was, I was certainly taught um, by my father to be resilient in the face of struggle and pain, uh, but my experience was more, um, more, 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 more brain pain that was caused by a, um, a, a true default in my brain. My, my experience was that my brain was falling out of sorts when I was trying to remain calm and, and, and well, and my brain was trying to kill me as I desperately the tried to cling disorder, to life. The right. bipolar disorder. Right. My brain was trying to kill me as I desperately tried to cling to life. But you had a lot of trauma as a child too. I had a lot of trauma as an infant, um, which, 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 which would affect the rest of my life. Um, and, and, and I, and I think that I, I think that where I, where I really struggled was, um, in grade school, I was so heavily bullied by the other kids, uh, to the point, uh, of racist bullying, prejudice bullying and physical bullying that was so detrimental to my health and well-being. It played a role in my negative self-talk for the rest of my life. So I would end up, um, for after grade school and high school being so heavily bullied and pushed around, I mean, James, they would pick me up and put me in a trash can upside down and tell me that's what I was because I was part black. So like, it was terrible. 
It was absolutely terrible. Um, or they would hold me from behind and punch me in the gut so no one would see the bruises. And, and or they'd pull my ears and hit me in the back of the head. Um, you know, it's just, just really some nasty stuff. And that was before cyberbullying ever existed. So it was all physical. And it really affected my, my look on life. And it affected my eventual clinical depression with my bipolar disorder. And even if my both birth parents had had um, you know mental illness, and I had a genetically predisposition to it, I can tell you that that bullying, hazing, and teasing, and aggression uh, took a took a huge toll on my well being because I would just say to myself in the mirror that I was ugly, stupid, dumb, and 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 or fat or whatever the situation may be, and I, I gave myself these negative emotions for who I was from a very young age for a very long time. By the time I was so sick mentally and couldn't cope, those voices turned into auditory hallucinations telling me I had to die. The bipolar disorder hit. Yeah, so it, it, it all it all was a part of the same process. There was a trigger to that too though, honey, right? It yeah. was like your parents announcing they were getting divorced. Parents, parents getting divorced, that took a huge toll on me because I didn't see it coming. And I think that if I can go back and, and think about that, you know, my parents don't see their, their divorce as something that really affected their kids, but that affected them. But in reality, things that affect people you love that are that are sad, traumatic, and difficult are traumas on the people that love them painful, as yeah. well. Okay. And it's painful. And so one of the things we talked about recently on one of my live streams with Eric Cusin of the Same Here Mental Health Movement is that the things that happen to people you love that are dangerous, detrimental, horrible painful. Or, or painful are traumas to you. And we look, you know, so many people think of trauma and PTSD as something that only is happening to first responders or the military or people in combat. But that's not true. Traumas can occur in anybody's life um, who loses someone to a car crash or a, a death in the family from someone they loved unconditionally of any means. Anyone that's that abrupt. cared about those people. Anybody that cares about those people. It happens to so them it too happens to some degree. Thank you. It happens yeah. to them too. And and so when my parents got divorced, um, I didn't see it coming. Uh, where my sister did, she was prepared. I didn't see it coming, so it threw me for an entire loop. And right around the time they got divorced is when I had my first mental health breakdown. So it's just, it's fascinating when you go back and you understand after reading a bit about psychology and sociology and understanding the, the, the outputs of trauma um, and, and generational trauma, even how it can affect you in your life. Um, and that, that, that feeling from when I was an infant, that, that, that when they diagnosed me with a detachment disorder and, and abandonment issues, that has followed me my entire life until today. Every time someone I love dies today, I feel like they're leaving me on purpose and I can't shake it no matter how much therapy I do. That is a burden I carry. Um, I'm okay with it now because I can reverse that thinking because my wife helps, helps me do so, you know, but I want to, I, I want to just point out, you know, we have some great resources for people in mental pain. I, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to, to point them out to people on your please. show. Please. Yeah, please. We, so, so once again, you can text CNQR to 741741. That's our conquer keyword for, for and we talked about that, the, the, for the crisis test. I'm going to be with you in seconds. Um, you can go to kevinhindstory.com slash resources and find three amazing resources. One is called The Art of Wellness. It's a 10-step guide to bettering your brain health, common sense tools to better brain health, to change your life today. In six to nine months of following this program, people from as far as Peru, Africa, China, and Japan, and America are saying that it's changing their lives 
dramatically for the better. Uh, that's called the art of wellness. You can look on there at, at a parent's guide to suicide prevention for teens. My wife, Margaret, and some of the greatest suicidologists around wrote that. And that's uh, a heavily downloaded one on the field, one of the most heavily downloaded in the field. And that one's being looked at by people all around the world and being utilized as to help people rich. as a resource, very resource rich, very helpful for people. You can download that for free. We give that away for free. The third resource is a guide to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. There are 400 active videos on how to help people brain well, how to help them with their brain, free, mind, behavioral, free. mental health, how to help them change their lives. And you can go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines or just type in Kevin Hines once you go to YouTube in the search bar and you want to just find the picture with me in the circle, hit subscribe, click that bell because these videos, people are writing in that they're saving and changing their life every day. And I really want them to be go to scale and help as many people as humanly possible. And one other thing I'm going to add to that is there are international phone numbers and websites for international resources for people that are in crisis outside yeah. of the United States. Yep. You can so, go to suicide.org for the international resources yes, on suicide prevention. And we have it on our website, yeah. Brilliant. Well, going back to what you said about divorce, I can personally attain to that because when I went through divorce, I never saw it as traumatic for me, but my little boy you know, was dragged through that as a very, it's an ongoing thing. I mean, it's not, you know, these, these great couples that you see, they just grew apart and everyone's fine. They're still friends. It's the polar opposite of that. And and I see the trauma and it's, it's horrible. Um, so there's, there's no question at all, but we've been talking about the ownership. We've been talking about, you know, um, the, 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 having to reach out if you're hurting to, to understand that if you reach an arm out, that, you know, someone's there hoping, you know, to help. The other side of this, and I remember you telling me this in, in the, the interview and then I think in the, the ripple effect as well, is about everyone else who's doing well, looking for the people that aren't. And I talk about this a lot. I've been very fortunate mentally. I've been through some, you know, some rough times, especially a, a couple of years were pretty, pretty bad, but was given the score. didn't have that, you know, brain that was portraying me with any, you know, bipolar thoughts. Um, and so was able to get through it. And so what I tell people is everyone who's not hurting, everyone who says they're doing well, you know, then it's up to you to teach everyone else. What are you doing? Well, are you exercising? Are you eating? Well, you have a mental practice, but tell me about when you were on the bridge and you were in tears on the golden gate bridge and, and what some of the, the people passing by did or didn't do. Um, that contributed to ultimately that decision at that moment? Because I think that's a very important thing for everyone who's not hurrying. Absolutely. So I was on that bridge, and let's, let's start at the bus. I'm on the bus crying like a child. Waterfalls pouring from my eyes, mucus dripping from my nose. And 100 people are on that bus, but nobody says a word. Nobody says one word. Except for the man next to me who says, what the hell's wrong with that kid? With a smile on his face, right? The bus gets to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. Everybody deboards but me. I'm crying my eyes out, hoping the bus driver will see my pain and ask me if I'm okay. Because if he asks me if I'm okay, I'm going to tell him everything. He says, come on, kid, get off the bus. I got to go. I walk out into the span of the Golden Gate Bridge. I pick a particular light rail after 40 minutes of walking up and down the entire span of the two-mile stretch of walkway. I pick a particular light rail. And that's when a woman from my left approaches and... And says to me, excuse me, sir, will you take my picture? She stands in front of me. I take her picture th five times. She walks away. She walks away. Now, she didn't see my pain. At that moment, I said to myself, absolutely nobody cares. 
which was the furthest thing from the truth. Everybody cared. I just couldn't see it. As I said before, my brain was trying to kill me as I desperately tried to cling to life. She walked away. I said, nobody cares. The voice in my head screamed and beckoned, jump now, and I did. Had someone on the bridge of the bus said, are you okay? Is something wrong or can I help you? I would have told them everything and begged them to save me. Now, to be fair, my father tried to reach me very heavily that morning, but I was not yet ambivalent when he tried to reach me. So I could not see anywhere through the pain like I could on the bridge. So that's not his fault. No one taught Pat Hines suicide prevention. How could he have known? He did the best he could with, he knew, with what he knew how. And, uh, you know, I just think that people could be more compassionate, loving and caring and empathetic toward those they don't know from Adam if they can recognize we're all human beings, we all err, we all need help, and we all have value. And I think that um, we have forgotten in this society how to have empathy for the every human, the every man, woman, child, and individual, versus having just empathy for the ones that we like, or that we know, or that we love. I think we need to look around us more often and see the value in every person we meet. I often say, if you don't see beauty in the next person you meet, you're not looking hard enough. There's beauty in everybody, even the people we don't agree with, even the people we, we potentially don't like. They've all got a beautiful side. And I think that we could all be better human beings if we just be a little more kind and compassionate to people in mental pain. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And that's, that's exactly it. How easy is it to ask someone who's crying are you okay? And then not, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, that right, bye. The, the actually invested, are you okay? No, 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 you're, you're in tears right now. What's going on? And I think even going back to what you're talking about with the trauma as a child, someone raised those kids to think that it was okay to pick on a kid because the pigmentation of his skin didn't exactly match theirs. I mean, the, you think of the insanity of all the unkindness in the world and how much trauma that causes and ironically the ripple effect you know the name of the film but it is it's just having the kindness and compassion to look around and see if anyone else is okay because a lot of people are doing just fine so then look yeah. around and ask you know you walk into these these religious buildings and and pray and recite you know scripture so do what you're, you're being taught you know go outside yeah. and look for someone to help and if you're doing well teach people what's working for you and, 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 you know, you're reaching your hand up, raise someone else up. And if you're hurting, obviously, the, the, the opposite, have the courage to ask for help. Because I think inherently most people are good. There are some horrible examples. Yeah. The kids yeah. that bullied you, you know, I mean, people drop the ball on that bus journey is no question. But I think a lot of people just need to be led. And if you present an opportunity to help, most people will gather around and, and say, okay, how can I help you, you know? So it's those two things, when, when they both line up, when someone asks for help and people are actually looking, that's, I think, one of the big elements of how we, we elevate this whole issue. Yeah. So today, I always say when I'm in that kind of pain, I need help now. And if the person to my left or right isn't willing to help me, I keep going and saying I need help now until someone is willing to give me their time. Usually it's my wife, sometimes it's my dad, sometimes it's other people in, 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 in random places where I don't have someone next to me that, that loves me. But I've always found 
in the last 20 years that when I ask for help diligently enough, somebody is willing to get there and be of service to me and be helpful and be kind and compassionate. It's, it, so if we can be more vulnerable in our pain, we can be, because a pain hair, shared is a pain halved. Um, and back to the bullies, you know, I, I would love to go up to my childhood bullies and just give them a hug and just say, I'm sorry for whatever you went through to make you so horrible to me because clearly someone hurt you first. And I know some of their, I know some of their past. And I know some of them have been through trauma uh, themselves in their home life. And, and that's why they were the way they were to me. And so I can, I've, I've forgiven them. I, I, I won't forget because it was so detrimental to my health. Um, but I will, I, I've completely forgiven what they did to me on a regular basis. Um, and I would love, I would love to have a conversation with them today and, and sit down with them, maybe even a public one, so we can understand where they came from and what, what, what made them the way they were. And just to end that whole conversation with a hug and say, hey, I'm glad you made it out of that, that lifestyle and that, and that behavioral situation. I'm glad you become the man or the human being that you become today. Um, because I think that that's important to recognize that people can change as they get older. Um, I'll tell you, I, I ran into one of my worst grade school bullies in church at, as he, when he was an adult. Um, and he shook my hand, uh, you know, gave me a dap and, sa- and said hello. Um, and, and he was smiling and I was smiling. And we, we clearly moved on from that painful time of the past. Um, and it wasn't like anything was resolved in that moment. I didn't say anything about the bullying. He didn't say anything about the bullying. It was a mutual understanding while looking at each other that we'd moved on from that situation and that he'd become the man he was supposed to be. And, and a good man at that, you, you could tell. So We're so different um, because I was bullied too in fourth grade. <laughs> but the difference between Kevin and I is that I fought back. And um, he ended up with a bloody nose, actually. So what happened was... <laughs> I ran into the same guy. We obviously had same, um, like hung out in the same circles, but I didn't see him for years. And then right around college, I was at at UC Berkeley and he happened to be at UC Berkeley and I ran into him and I'll never forget it because I, we started talking. It was at a coffee shop in Berkeley, California and, you know, friendly, very friendly. And, and I said to him, Hey, Mike, um, did you ever, uh, bully another girl again after that and he said no man he's bloody noses are no fun he's like (laughs) and then I just looked at him and I was like I said you're welcome you're welcome (laughs) and I gave him a hug and you know and that was that but I mean I think I think too it also um that's why we complement each other so much because my strength is very different from Kevin's Kevin's got very different strength than me and I I um he's so empathetic and he's so forgiving whereas I'm so protective and um like I'll fight back I'm the first person to fight back and twice as hard and Kevin's the first person to forgive um and so I've learned so much from him I think to be a better more compassionate person and he's I think learned so much from me to like stand up for yourself fight and find your resilience and you know what like you're worth you're worth more than any, what anybody else thinks. And you have to love yourself yeah. because, um, because you're worth your love. So, yeah. So that's why I think it works it with works. us. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, she reminded me of something when, uh, when 
Roland Kim and, and John Ware were fighting in the in the in the school in the schoolyard in grade school, and I, I just named them. It's okay, they're they're my friends. <laughs> we're, 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 we were all on the same basketball team. It's okay, they're my buddies. And they were fighting each other. They were going fist to fist at each like other, like boys do. Like boys do. And I separated them. And John just John going for Roland just clocked me right in the face, and I and I went down. And 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 I'll tell you one thing: it stopped the fight. They both stopped fighting. Picked me up like Kevin. So sorry, we didn't mean to hit you. We're trying to hit each other. And I was like, just stop fighting. There's no reason for this. And 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 the reason that when 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 the other the other folks like you know Tony and Mike and and Jim would bully me, and and I I always remembered, frankly, Bible school because I was in a Catholic school. We were all in a Catholic school, which makes it even more ridiculous. We're in a Catholic school, and I would always remember the term "turn the other cheek." And so every time they they would get behind me, crouch down and push me over, and I'd hit my head on the on the, the asphalt, or they would punch me in the face, or they would elbow me in the gut, or whatever they did, or put me in the trash can. The eighth graders would put me in the trash can. I would turn the other cheek and I would say, "Okay, they have issues. They need help. The only reason they're doing this is because they're hurt." And I understood that from a very very young age. And I'll never forget when Nick Barsetti. <laughs> who was an eighth grader was was who was uh, would would hold Mike Mike Bowie with his head down and Mike's swinging his arms but he can't reach him and he's holding his head down and he's making fun of him and calling him names because he's he calls him a nerd and everything and I said hey Mike or hey Nick leave him alone that's enough Nick says to me do you want to take his place and I said gladly leave Michael Bowie alone and don't do it again. And he said, well, then you're, he, then I'm doing it to you. And he did it to me. He did the same thing to me, held my head down and, and pushed me around and pushed me to the ground. And I just think from a very young age, I always knew something. I always knew from a very young age that I wanted to help people. I didn't know how. I didn't know how that, what that meant exactly. I mean, I remember that my mom recently told me that when my next door neighbor was mowing his lawn, I was four years of age. And I walked over and I said, I said, hey, you know, I can do that. And he said, you know, yeah. he goes, uh, no, you can't. You don't know how to operate a John Deere lawnmower. And I said, well, mm-hmm. when I get older, can I can I do that? And he said, sure, when you get older. And sure enough, I did. I would, I would go mow the lawns of everybody in my neighborhood. So it's just, you know, it, it's about perspective and how you look at things and how you see the value in other people, even though they might be trying to harm you, your, you and your well-being. Yeah. Well, I think turning out the cheek is, is exactly you know, what most people should do. But every so often, there's an Old Testament moment that you just have to whoop some ass to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, not me. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go to the same school. But... <laughs> oh, man. No, but it's true, though. I mean, you can't you can't go punching everyone in the face. I mean, if, if I punched everyone that was a complete a-hole on the road, I, I'd tell my son I wouldn't have any fists left. Doesn't mean yeah. I win the fights, but if I, you know, try to, but, but yeah, you have to pick your battles. But obviously, there is, you know, there's those times where, you know, you're past the point where, where forgiveness can work. So I think that's where that middle ground is. But you have to find a balance. Yeah. yeah. But the underlying thing is the more people understand kindness and compassion, the better the world's going to be. I mean, you know, the, like you said, hurt people hurt people. And these bullies are, are usually cowards themselves. And what I've seen talking about courage is, so much response to to men and women like yourself who are coming out and saying this is actually what's going on inside my head and the number of guests i've had on that after the podcast has aired 
they they tell me like oh my god these people just started coming out of the woodwork in my department in my you know police precinct whatever it was and I said that's because you were so freaking brave to tell your story and made yourself so vulnerable that's true courage not that you've got six-pack abs and and pecs that's (laughs) nothing to do with strength this is true strength so what you're doing is strength so i'm sure those bullies of yesteryear are looking at you now in in admiration of what you've done to the the mental health world that's true we've gotten we've gotten um texts and emails and phone calls and seen a few few of them i've actually got to meet a few of them so, Maybe. yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to meet them out in the parking lot. No, no. no. We've, 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 we've moved on. We've moved on. No. And, Kevin and, wouldn't and, let and me. They, so. they, they, they have their important and valuable traits, and they're good, they're good people. And they grew up. They and they grew, and up. they grew up, and that's the point. They grew up, and they became the people they are today. So it's all good. Yeah. 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 There's one uh, just, just conversely to that. There's one guy I had on, Bas Rutten. You know who is a UFC fighter? Uh-huh. Dutch guy. Um, he got bullied and, and he got together with, with two of his friends. I guess they started doing martial arts and stuff. And then they got to a point where they were big enough and skilled enough. And they, as a group, went around to every single kid that had bullied them and beat the shit out of them. <laughs> so they kept it straight Old Testament. <laughs> but everyone has their path. But anyway, um, so Margaret, I want to do one more area and then we'll go to some closing questions. I know we're kind of past what we said we were going to get to. Um, from a family member... What are some of the warning signs for you when Kevin is starting to find himself in a darker place? Because I know you know, statistically kind of middle-aged white males are the most, um, you know, likely to, which is a lot of the fire service, the police, police service, um, the military. Um, and obviously it expands to, to women and, and, and other races as well and age groups. But, um, with you know, with your perspective as a as a um, a wife, a spouse, what are some of the things that you look for specifically? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, I, I we've been married for thirteen years. We've been together for sixteen, almost sixteen. And I can I when Kevin pulls away socially and is not so we we talk twenty four seven whether he's traveling or I'm traveling, or we're together, um, we are always connected. And I can always tell when he's a little bit off, right? So the way I I, I, I measure it um, is that he, there's two, there are two, it's like these two lines, right? The top line, if he goes past that top line, he's too manic. And then there's a bottom line. And if he goes below that bottom line, he's, he's de- depressed. So he has to operate between those two lines, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I can always tell when he's operating a little too close to that bottom line because he becomes antisocial. I don't get, um, I don't get a laugh out of him or he doesn't tease me as much. And this is on a daily basis. He gets quieter than usual. And Kevin is never quiet. Um, and it's not a pensive quiet. It's like, uh, he gets more uh, involved in his phone or his iPad or his computer. And he's just, um, watching YouTube videos all day or, um, whatever, like looking at footage. And it's like, it's not just for a few hours, it's the entire day. And I can, he's not taking a break. And then I notice he's not eating properly because he's not taking a break. He's not drinking enough water. Um, so even when he takes his medication, which is, I, we feel at this point, the right, um, medication and the right dosage for him until it kind of has to change. Right. But for right now we're, we're, we're good. Um, even with that, he, he still kind of 
fluctuates um, between the two lines. Yeah. So, and then I can tell when he's too close to the top line, um, when he is not sleeping as uh, a full six to eight hours, when he's um, working out too much, where he's doing like three to five workouts a day um, or more certain times, um, or when he is talking really fast and um, he's not really making eye contact with me because he can't uh, focus. Um, and then when I'm asking him very specific, serious questions that need a serious answer, whether it's, <laughs> did you do your laundry? <laughs> <laughs> it, he can't, he can't give me, um, he can't really be, be kind and, and, uh, direct in his answer. So instead of, uh, oh yes, honey, I'm going to do it today or yep, I already did it. It's, uh, I don't want to do that right now. So he's a little cranky. Um, and I don't always get the answer to whatever my question is. Right. Um, and then I also noticed that he, so he, his mood swings, I, I can tell, I can usually tell that he's teetering. He's, he's either going a little bit too high or too low before he can, yeah. because I can see it. Yeah. Um, and so we have developed a lot of coping mechanisms, yeah. a lot. I mean, they're, they're different for every couple and we're, we will share them and we're really open and honest about a lot of them, but not every single one of our coping mechanisms will work for every couple. Um, yeah. so we, I can share a little bit. Um, when Kevin is dipping a little too low, we, and I, and I notice, I actually, can pull him aside and make him focus because he's not manic. He's closer to depression. And I or tell dropping, him, give you dropping. And I say, honey, you're really, uh, you're getting to the, to the closer to the lower line, the bottom line. And we need to get your um, energy level up. We need to get your serotonin levels up. And sometimes it's as easy as, I mean, I honey, give me drop and give me 50 and he'll get on and he'll do it. Cause he's 50 pushups, 50 pushups. Yeah. yeah. Or jumping jacks or, or, or whatever, or 50, 50 pushups and 50 jumping jacks. Or we'll go for a run together or a go walk run, or what, a walk, whatever we outside. can at that point. Um, and sometimes it's as easy as like, you're really having a hard time. Like you're just not feeling well. And I have to cuddle him. Like I just have to hold him. And sometimes I just hold him for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it takes for him to say, okay, I'm feeling better. And I can see that like hugging and touch. Um, and I think there's science behind this actually, that actually it helps improve your serotonin levels yeah. and your dopamine receptors. So I think that, you know, I can see it firsthand and then yeah. go ahead. We embrace a lot, like physically embrace a lot and hold each other inside the pain and it, it really benefits me uh because she's the most important person in my life and you know 23 second hugs release oxytocin in the brain that make you feel better um and that, that's just a, a known scientific fact and and so we do a lot of that and and when i'm when i'm dipping too low uh you know doing the push-ups doing the sit-ups or doing the, the the jumping jacks are crucial to get me out of that moment and then we do things that and have conversations about why I'm too low. What is what is the root problem and the root of the the root of the issue? Right. And how we do get we get to the heart of it? How do well, getting to the heart of it? How do we? But balance that's the that? easiest part, right? I think when he's depressed, when he's dipping low, is actually a lot easier than when he's going too high. So one of the things we do is like we have a rule at home: you shower every day. So even if he doesn't want to shower, because hygiene we know is a an indicator of depression. There are nights where he, or days or mornings when he doesn't want to shower, but we have a rule, no matter how depressed you are, Kevin has, he has, we have to 
get in the shower, right? So every day he has to take a shower. And there are days when it's like, oh, I just want to skip today, he says. And I'm like, no, even if you showered that morning or yeah. two hours before, before you get into bed, you have Maybe to take again. a shower. So we put these rules in place that we follow and we really adhere to. And we're pretty, routine. and it's routine. it's routine. I think that's, that's yeah. the thing is no matter what you stick to them. Um, we, we know that that routine and regimen are the two greatest proven. combative, proven combative factors to mental illness, bipolar disorder and depression. When you have a strict routine and regimen, wake up time, go to bed time, eating times, sleep, you know, um, uh, exercise times, therapy, uh, therapy times, when those, th when those things are, are, are every day in, in the same two hour period, um, each one of them in the same two hour period, you have a better chance of defeating your mental stress than if, if you, if you just, for anyone, that, that, for any, anyone with a diagnosis, you have a better chance of succeeding in the day with the routine than if you don't. So that all that said, last year was a really tough year for us yeah. um, and the year before because Kevin was removed off of all of his pills, like he had mentioned earlier. The but burns so, I had caused right. them to take the me off my meds. Because in all of his meds. Because one of the meds was poisoning my system. With no titration. Within like, 24 like hours, they took me off all my meds or I was, because I was, I was at risk of dying. So we were, I mean, he literally, we were oh, traveling and then we had to stop work for a while and Kevin's mania just skyrocketed. Oh. And the problem that that was really tough. But I, I had a year of man, I had a of year mania of, of mania. That. Even which, when he got back on his medication, the mania continued. Which they say is akin to having brain damage. So when when you have a year of mania, your brain rewrites itself and can really be damaged. And 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 that's where I was. And it was so hard for us, but we got yes. through it and we got me back on track, got me back on a medication that works. A medication regimen that works. Right. And, and so when he was operating too close to the top, or in that case last year, far above the top. Far above the top. Yeah. It's very hard to get him to focus. And to level out. Versus like the dips, right? Because then I literally have to like grab his face and make him look me in the eye. And, and he just, and that's when Kevin can tell me, and he has so often, I just can't focus. I don't understand what you're saying. Because his brain is moving like a million miles an hour. That's where it's really, really tough. And again, we have to go right back into okay, we have to meditate. So we started learning transcendental meditation. Kevin started, we started doing yoga. We have and the then, Calm app. We use the Calm breathing we app. We do the breathing exercises. Uh, Headspace, the, the app Headspace. And, and, then, um, and then we do the grounding. We do a lot of grounding therapy together um, so that we can do it on a daily basis several times throughout the day, depending on the severity of the mania. Yeah. Um, thankfully, the two things. One, thankfully, the mania, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't stay. It, although it stayed for almost two years, it does. You do get past it because that's what was really trying for me. I didn't know if I could continue mm. the the care that I was giving him if it was right on or if I was it was it was ample um, for Kevin as his caregiver. And then he entered the hospital and it was just they got his medication right. He needed to kind of be in a place where. I mean, they completely changed his medication, actually, but he needed to be on a, in a safe place. So he self-admitted, which is kind of his his thing. Like, that's what he's done the past. How many times have you been in the hospital? I've uh, been in the hospital nine times, self-admitted the last uh, uh, the last six. Last six times I said, I need to be in there or I won't be here. And, and we got to a safe place. But the, uh, this is all of that is to say that we work as a team. We do this together. Uh, everybody needs help sometimes. Um, and I'm in a place right now where I'm so mentally healthy and stable. Um, I've gained a bit of weight 
since I, since I was working out three times, four times, five times a day, even before that 16 times a day when I was really in a lot of physical pain. Um, because the medication, because the medication I'm on mm -hmm. depletes my leptin. The leptin is the chemical in your body that tells you when you're full. There are a lot of medications in mental mm -hmm. health that when you, when they deplete your leptin, you can't physically tell when your stomach is full you're not satisfied and, and you have, you have receptors to the brain that say eat more all the time. So you're just constantly grossly hungry. Um, and, and you just feel a, a, a need to eat more and more. And I've let that go. So I need to, when that happens, you need to rediscipline yourself in the, in the, in, in your four corners, in your box and, and, and basically trick your mind into telling you you're full or just eat, you know, every meal the size of your fist. So that's something that I'm working on now is getting back in physical shape so I can feel better mentally, but I'm feeling great mentally to the best. Yeah. I mean, right for now, several because, months now, for several months now, because of the medication regimen I'm on, um, and because of the other practices that I do every day within my 10 steps to stay stable, which includes sleeping eight to 10 hours a night, which I do really well, uh, which include reading everything I can about bipolar disorder and the newest treatments and, and routines for it, which includes uh, using a light box therapy every morning uh, to benefit my brain health. So I'm doing all the other things in my routine and I'm staying within those two hour brackets of eating and everything like that. So I'm keeping everything else in my routine and I'm trying to get back in exercise. But for couples out there that are listening to this and, you know, I get this question all constantly. I probably get this like in 20 to 30 emails a day is how, how do you do it? What do you, how are you guys still together after all these years? How can you stand him? How do you take <laughs> care of him? How can, I mean, literally like, how do you guys make it work? I mean, there, all these questions. And you know, the truth is like, it's different for every couple. Everybody has, has it's not it's not one size fits all but i'm finding that there are two common denominators that are working for the couples that are making it work including us one is brutal honesty um we have to you have to lay down ground rules in your marriage whatever they are for you but the two things that are non-negotiable for us is honesty always tell me how you feel if i ask you a question tell me even if you don't think i want to hear the answer tell me because when you have a mental illness or somebody who has a mental illness within that marriage, it, it always falls on the, you, the, the caregiver cannot give you the right or proper care uh, or sufficient care if they don't know what's going on with mm. you. So if I say, how do you feel? What do you think about this? Why are you doing this? Yeah. Let, like, let's be really honest, yeah. be honest with each other. Both. It works both ways. And the second thing is communication over communicate. Um, and sometimes, you know, guys don't like talking. So for Kevin and I, it's a little bit reverse. I don't always like talking. And Kevin is the one who, who loves therapy. He's always constantly talking. I find with a lot of our friends, the men don't typically want to always chat and the women are, they want to talk about everything. Um, so we have this thing where we, we learn from a friend of ours. It's called fix it or feel it. So when I am, or Kevin has something to say, and, you know, I feel like I want to uh, weigh in on it. Uh, before I do, or before he does, if it's it's me sharing something, complaining or whatever it is, he'll he'll say, "Honey, is this a fix it or feel it?" And if it's a feel it, he just listens. If it's a fix it, then he'll come in and 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 try, give try me solutions. Get, try to get solutions, right? Yeah. And ninety nine percent of the time, it's a feel it, man. And I think that's what yeah. people are finding. And sometimes you just need a partner, a thought partner, somebody to just vent to, and just let them talk. Just let them talk. So that and that's the thing is. You, you you start with, is it a fix it or feel it? 
But sometimes just getting stuff off your chest helps. And you learn about what your partner's going through, how they think, how they feel, or communicating. So those are the two common denominators that I would suggest. Then you just kind of build from that. And I think that's what's kept us together and and so happy together for so long is that we respect each other's boundaries. Uh, We respect uh, when we're going through pain and and, and we respect that fix it or feel it so that when, Mm -hmm. when we say one or the other, it's followed and it's, 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 uh, it's utilized. And um, uh, you know, we, uh, we can get through anything because we've been through so much already. Oh, we have a third rule. Recently, we found out oh. it's we we both can't be crazy at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, a harder rule to follow, though. Huh? That's a harder rule <laughs> to follow. <laughs> well, it's funny you said that about the fix it or feel it because I think a lot of people listening to this will be able to relate. So when we're at work, you know, we the the alarm comes in, there's a house on fire, we go there, we get in our big you know engine, we pull off the hoses, we put the fire out, and then when you get home, you kind of want to do the same thing. And I found that myself, Becky's. Becky's not a big talker either. I guess running a podcast, I'm probably more of a talker than she is. But but it's the same thing as like when she has the the, the house fire, I just want to put it out. I want to fix it. What's going on? Let's let's make a plan. And basically, what she's telling is just shut up and let the house burn. You know, and it's and it's true. Just to, you know, just yeah. listen. You can't fix it. This is a work problem, or whatever it is. Or I'm just feeling down today, and just be in there, and maybe you know. Just make her something to eat and sit down with her and just, you know, be present. And I think that's it. And, and what you've said is is obviously pertaining to mental health, but it's sort of pertaining to relationships in general. I think it's great advice. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want let's transition to some closing questions because I want to make sure we let you go. We're already past what we said we were going to do, oh, okay. <laughs> which happens okay. a lot. <laughs> um, but before we get to the closing questions, let's just talk about Suicide the Ripple Effect. I hosted a showing here in Ocala. And it was, it was incredible. We, we sat and watched the movie. Even my little boy came and watched it. Um, and then after we did a kind of informal Q and A and there was probably, I think 50, 55, whatever the minimum was. We, we, we hit that. Um, and some of the stories that people shared, people stayed behind and were crying and hugging and outside the movie theater, they're doing the same thing. It was a very small group of people that were all vulnerable together. So. A very different experience than than most films, most documentaries. So, just tell me, you know, what made you um, put it together, and then where people can find it, because every single person listening needs to watch this film. So, um, Greg Cherry, uh, Margaret, his wife, and I made the film Suicide: The Ripple Effect with the help from a lot of people. We made the film with the title "The Ripple Effect," and I'll tell you the ripple effect where the, where the title "The Ripple Effect" came from. The the year after. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I went back to the bridge with my father and we dropped the flower off the rail to to find closure right at the same uh, light rail that I jumped off of. The flower hit the water and two feet to the right popped up a sea lion. Yeah, and when the flower hit the water, there was a series of ripple effects that came around it. Two feet to the right popped up a sea lion. We made the film Suicide, The Ripple Effect, to help people in mental pain, to help people who lost people to suicide, and to help people who attempted suicide and survived. Um, and to help share the narrative of people around the world scale the with, story. with scale the story with lived experience. So we, we there's six people in the film from around the world, a lot from Australia, who share their stories in the movie, including myself. Um, and we go to Japan, Ireland, the UK. Uh, we went to uh, Australia uh, and Canada, and that's all featured in the film as well as the US. Um, it, it was about hope. 
and finding pe- helping people find the light at the tunnel, no matter the pain they're in. And I think that we did. It. I think we nailed it on top of the head. I think we 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 got our message through clear. And all over the world, seven hundred fifty thousand people have seen the film in twenty different countries today. Um, and it's you can find it on Google Play, YouTube, uh, Vudu, uh, iTunes. I- iTunes um, uh, so Amazon, a, I think it's Amazon, Amazon, Amazon yeah. Prime, I Amazon, I, exactly. I Amazon, and 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 um, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that we're very very proud of. Uh, uh, Ryan Moser was our editor and scoring artist, and it really. Um, why, it, why did it, you make the film? We, we made the film because we felt there was a lack of suicide prevention films that didn't end in pain. That that didn't end inspirationally. They end. They ended. They ended in pain, and 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 when you when you leave a theater in pain from a movie, mm-hmm. you're in a bad place mentally, and it's not very. It's triggering. Um, and we wanted to make a movie that ended in hope. At the very end of the movie, there's a song we wrote called "Be Here Tomorrow," um, and that song is played during the credit scenes. Um, it's a beautiful song about hope. You can get that song on iTunes. "Be Here Tomorrow." Uh, by AV. And on the hundreds of thousands of comments that we got from viewers of that film, so far not one has ever said it was triggering or that it left them hopeless or it made them sad. Every single, I mean, we can't tell you. We have had 150 people say that this film saved their life. Actually more of that. Since we last counted like a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago. And that's a message scale that's, that's done what it was meant to do. Yeah. And I can tell you right now that the feedback I got just from that one showing was amazing. And I know it, it started a conversation that I think brought a lot of people out of the shadows. And I, as I think we reached out a few months ago, I tried to do another showing because there was so much of demand. But I think that was a transition where it went on to, to DVD. So now people can just, you know, stream it themselves. But yeah, I mean, I can testify it was a, a very, very powerful film. But like you said, that gave hope. It wasn't like, oh, people are dying, the end. It was no. It was here's here's how we can change the the whole face of of mental illness and and you know bring solutions to these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there might be a follow on to that. Hope the ripple effect. Excellent, excellent. We'll be looking for that. Yes, it'll be about other people's stories. I think you know most people know about a lot of people know about Kevin's stories, but story. But to highlight other folks' stories, like like yours, even. I mean. Everybody has a story and stories actually save lives. And that is, there's evidence and science behind that. So um, we're going to continue to make this media because this is, uh, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, no, and they do. The stories I've had on here so far, people have, have met, you know, just had such a reaction and reached so many people. All right. So we, we've talked about the film then. So is there a book that you love to recommend can be what we've discussed today or something completely different. You know, there is, it's called genius foods by Max Lugavere. We're both obsessed with this book. Actually, there's two books and that we're both um, reading right now. Um, They're both books on nutrition um, and brain foods really. So body love by Kelly Levesque and genius foods by Max Lugavere. And Kelly's my cousin. So we're biased. (laughs) So, but really, the foods are about, you know, we, we think about food, diet, nutrition. The first thing that comes to mind is losing weight. That's absolutely not even what 
what, uh, why we started reading these books, purchased them or looked into them. Everything we started doing with our food is really looking at at the anti-inflammation and nutritional value because of Kevin's brain health, his mental health, because mine, even though I don't necessarily have a diagnosis, everybody should be thinking about the inflammatory foods that they're eating because it does affect your moods. Uh, Also, you know, to get your energy, energy levels up. So Max and Kelly both write about um, foods that are how you feed to, to eat foods and how you feed yourself for nutritional value. So you're getting the maximum benefit from your foods. It's not so much to give you great. You probably lose weight and you'll probably gain more energy, but really to get more oxygen into your brain, to eat less processed foods, if none at all, so that you can actually start to feel physically and mentally better. And you know what? It's, it works. It works. Try it for like two weeks and it works. And so we're both, this is Max's second book that's actually out. It's called The Genius Life. Um, yeah, he's got Genius he's got Foods genius and Genius foods, Life. Genius Life. And, and, and Kelly Levesque has Body Love and then Body Love Every Day. And those are the, they're two authors, four books. Um, and we're actually both reading them. We read them before we go to bed at night. So. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. Healthy body, healthy mind. It, the people, I think, lack the, the desire to exercise, the desire to eat well. And you know, yeah. if, if your your headspace isn't in a place where you understand the the health of your body, then you're not going to have that desire to go to the gym or the desire to choose a healthy a healthy meal. So I couldn't agree more. And you just feel better from that, too. So. All right. Well, then the the next question, um, Kevin. I know you love uh, the Avengers. So, what <laughs> what are your favorite movies? Well, I love comic books in general. I've been a comic book fan and, and collector since I was a little kid. I have, you know, I, I used to have over twenty boxes of comic books that sadly I gave away during my mental health crisis right before I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. So I never got those back. But I, <laughs> I, I I've started a new collection recently, um, and uh, my favorite character is Deadpool. Uh, he was born in pain, and so was I. Um, and I relate to that character a great deal because he's always trying to help people, um, even in an odd way, um, because he's such a, a uh, an uh, odd character. Odd character. Um, but 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 um, but um, I, I always consider myself weird and out of the norm and not normal, just like Deadpool. And I just think that uh, that character I relate to the most. Um, but if you look at like Spider Man. And the anxiety he uh, Peter Parker has, uh, and you, you look at characters like Venom and the duality he has uh, with the symbiote. You know, I can connect to all of these characters who have underlying mental health crises and potential, you know, diagnoses. There's even a series on in the, in the that's Marvel universe. There's even a series in the DC universe um, called um, uh, Heroes in Crisis, and it's where the heroes go and get therapy. Uh, in a in a in a in a halfway home, uh, and you're talking about the biggest heroes in the DC universe all getting uh, therapy from one of the characters in the DC universe who's got these powers to help them get get out of their their PTSD. They've all got PTSD from these huge events that they've saved the world from, but they're all doing terribly mentally because they've worked so hard to save lives in times of great crisis. There's fascinating reads right now in comics that are really, really connecting to mental health. So uh, I love all that stuff. I have a huge collection, um, and I'm uh, I've got a my, in my den downstairs, in my you know man cave downstairs. <laughs> it's all Marvel and DC'd out. So uh, I've even got a, a YouTube video on that uh, uh, on my channel. 
Brilliant. Well, it's funny because you mentioned about the heroes in crisis. When you take a step back and look at all the childhood trauma in most of the superheroes, Batman's a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's such a parallel. It's you know you don't yeah. even have to look very hard. No, it's a, it's all there, and um, I think that the way they've designed comics for each of those care each of those heroes to be so vulnerable um, within their pain. Uh, they're really, they've really been speaking to the mental health community for a very long time, mm-hmm. very long time. They've, they've been on that since before we were onto it ourselves. Absolutely. All right. Well, Margaret, same question. Movie. Oh, we're polar opposites because I don't really, I mean, I'll watch a Marvel movie just so that I'm with Kevin at a movie, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not my choice. Like I, my absolute I'll just tell you American Sniper American Sniper is one of my favorite movies Um, I love 13 Hours I love military movies I'm obsessed with Narcos on Netflix but my absolute favorite movie of all time is The Thomas Crown Affair I love that movie it's just fun and it's cute and it's lighthearted but you know lately when we are relaxing we'll have each of our iPads so we can watch different genres different <laughs> we'll movies be in the same place. so kevin will have cartoons on his because this is like our relaxing time he'll have his cartoon he'll have his marvel show and then i'll have narcos and a pile of dead bodies on the screen and he'll look over and he's like i thought we were supposed to be relaxing and i said well this is relaxing to me blood yeah. and gore and guts like this is relaxing to me <laughs> and um yeah so that's that's kind of how <laughs> when when she went to see american sniper oh i was in the theater next door watching uh watching the penguin uh, movie the penguin movie the, those <laughs> happy like, feet Cartoon Penguin. <laughs> <big. laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, but I would say my favorite movie of all time is Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. That's a good movie. Oh my God! It's the, the first one, not the second one, the first one. But the, <laughs> that movie, uh, I I've watched that a thousand times. Yeah, actually, Jim Carrey would be an amazing person to interview. He seems to have found himself in a very deep philosophical place these days. He really has. Yeah. He was, yeah. good point. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So the same question, but a documentary. Obviously. Um, was it was it the bridge that you were on as well? Is that what it was called? I was in the bridge before yeah. Suicide the Ripple Effect. That's right. It was uh, the bridge. That was a, a really powerful documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge deaths. Um, my favorite documentary um, <laughs> would have to be. Oh, I'm blanking. Do you have one? Yeah, I saw one um, last year, and it's called Audrey and Daisy. I knew it was something Daisy, Audrey and Daisy, and it's about these two young girls that were um, sexually assaulted in their communities. And I liked how it was just so honest. And it's not a typical genre that I would I would actually pick. A friend recommended it, and um, there was nothing else to watch. Quite honestly, I watched this documentary, and I recognized. I, I just saw the authenticity and the heart. Um, and the and the um, vulnerability in every single character on that film, and I I really appreciated the grassroots effort. You can tell that there wasn't a lot of money and a lot of, of production value put into this. They probably didn't care about the color correction or even the the sound so much. Um, it was an imperfect film, but because of that, I felt like I was there, and that was actually one of the very few films I felt like I was actually in and so emotionally invested in the characters. So Audrey and Daisy would be my favorite. Can I just say my favorite is Suicide the Ripple Effect? Yes, <laughs> yes. Julie noted. No, I know what your favorite is. Waiting for 
Silverman or what was his name? Waiting oh, for waiting for Sugar Man. Sugar Man. That was amazing. There you waiting go. Waiting for Sugar Man. Waiting for Sugar Man. That was that was a phenomenal you film. Kept I, saying how, I did. Yeah. I was blown away by that film. That's right. You bet. Excellent. Well, thank you for all those. Those are all some some new titles and new books for me. Um, all right. So then next one. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders of military yes. of the world? Spencer. Spencer J. Stone. So Spencer is a United States Air Force officer who, I don't know, did you see the movie um, 1517 Train to Paris? I did. Yes. That's Spencer. He is. He actually played himself. He's the one who tackled the terrorist. He's a friend of ours. Excellent. I'm happy to make an introduction. Yeah, that would be sure. that would be amazing. And then totally, just while we were talking, it popped in my head as well. Wasn't there one of the law enforcement, I think, officers that has responded to so many of the suicides at the bridge as well? He's almost got like the the angel of the the bridge or something like that. Oh yeah, like Kevin Briggs. Kevin yeah. Briggs. Yes. Yeah. We. You want yeah. an introduction? That, that would be amazing. We're introduced to Kevin yes. Briggs. For sure. Yeah, I yes. think that oh, would be. Oh, you know what? There is an amazing police officer out of Australia, too, who his name is Joel Murchie. He was the New South Wales commander for the mental health unit. And under him, he's since retired, but he under his um, his administration, um, he at every single New South Wales police officer was trained in mental health. And they've First actually de escalated. Yeah, he improved the CIT model. They de escalated. There were no deaths during his administration. Um, for uh the, the police officers didn't kill any of the um of the like mental ha- perpetrators that were potentially mentally ill ah. um because that had apparently continued happened many times before because they didn't understand mental illness and you, as a police officer you feel threatened but because they got some training and education they were able to protect themselves as well as ascertain the mental illness and how to kind of de-escalate those things and so it was fascinating he, but he and he was also a survivor of the Bali bombings. Oh wow, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. phenomenal story. So those are yes. those are two there. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. And that's what I love yeah. about this question. I threw it in after about hundred episodes and it's just like this <laughs> farming yes. all these amazing people on planet yes. Earth now. So thank you. Yes. All right. Absolutely. So then the very last question before we reiterate where everyone can find you and the websites and the film. What do you do for self care now? What do you do to decompress? So uh, we 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 talk we talk every day about how we're doing mentally. Peak in the pit. Peak in the pit of my day or our day. Um, I, I I utilize my therapist and psychiatrist uh, on a, on a weekly basis to bi-weekly basis. I utilize the app Talkspace to talk digitally to to a therapist therapy. whenever I need to. That's their online online therapy uh, where I can look at them on a, on, on my phone and have a conversation in real time. Um, it's very beneficial. Uh, I utilize blue wave light box technology every morning to benefit my brain health that goes through my eyes and back to my brain and affects my mental well-being and keeps me jovial during the day. Um, I have not been exercising for a bit because of my injuries, but also because of my, um, just a walk and jog, but, but walking and jogging has been helpful. I've been starting to do that the last couple of days. So I'm getting back into that. Um, waking up, having that routine of waking up at the same time every day, going to bed at the same time every day eating at the same time every day within that two-hour period for each of those. I've been doing those things, um, reading everything I can about bipolar disorder so that I can defeat it um, one day at a time. So those are the things I'm doing on a regular basis. And you can look at the rest of my steps to wellness at youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, the playlist, The Art of Wellness, 12 videos, 10 steps, three to five minutes on how to better your brain health. Eat. 
I just connect with family. Um, and she talks to her family. She talks to her 150 family members. Yeah. Yes. They have, they have the, every day. I swear they have the largest Snapchat <laughs> in the world. It's so fun. And it, um, it always, I'm always so grateful for my life and um, for the people around me after I talk to my family because I, I realize how blessed we are and that it's, it's a, it's a gift, you know, not everybody has that. So yeah. um, now that I'm, I, I'm able to recognize that I'm older and I understand that, you know, family is everything. I mean, you know, when I was 16, I couldn't have said the same thing, but now I definitely recognize the value of that. And so that's, that's kind of been my, yeah. my big um, um, coping mechanism, family. Good. Excellent. All right. Then very last question. Um, when people want to reach out or find you online, what are the sites and uh, social media handles they can find you? Uh, we're at Kevin Hines story across all social medias. And, and I think if you just go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, that is the way to comment to me because I answer all my comments um, and, and to reach out. That's, that's a, the fastest way and the quickest yeah. way. And, and we have a series called ask Kev, on that YouTube channel where if you ask me a direct question about mental health, we answer it. We answer it later on in the, in the, in the series called ask Kev. We're recording for them today. So, um, we put those out every, every Thursday and Saturday, uh, because of, because of how many videos we've created so far, we might be changing that to Thursday, Friday and Saturday, but those videos have been very helpful to a lot of people. Brilliant. And then the website website is Kevin Kevinheinzstory.com. Brilliant. I want to say thank you so much. It's been incredible. I mean, I know the toll it must take to tell a story over and over and over again. And I really appreciate you, you know, doing it, especially in this time of confinement where we might all be eaten by zombies in the next few days. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, but I know, I know firsthand what the, what the film did, the impact that you've had on, you know, the social media stuff that I've seen. Um, and just being one of the, the faces that's standing up and saying, this is what I went through and pulling people out of the shadows that are feeling alone and isolated and making them realize that they're not alone and they're not crazy. Um, and that there are solutions to their, their pain. So thank you both so much for being so generous with your time. You bet. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us, James. And we can't wait to have you on tonight.